0: And hello again and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino and on today's program we're going to be taking a brief look at the history of Attorneys General in the United States of America in a little segment I call From Bar to Bar where we will bookend either side of Bar's tenure as Attorney General. Take a look at Janet Reno all the way through Mike Mukasey, all the way through Eric Holder and everyone else And of course, ending with a look at William Barr, his most recent testimony before Congress and the House Oversight Committee, and yet another fine example of why William Barr should be impeached. I'm going to do a complete accounting for that because... While the Democratic Party is very focused on this upcoming election, which looks pretty good for them, let's keep it real, there's also the job of governing that is still afoot, and although we're less than 100 days from the election, it's not as though the business of the country has stopped. But hey, I don't know if you heard about this, there is an election coming up, and it's increasingly looking like it's going to be a schmoz. Now, I have been someone who has not bought into the Joe Biden resistance style narrative that Trump is going to hijack the election. I mean, they were saying this back in April. And back in April, you really didn't have much to go on other than we know who Trump is. But the real implication there was this election was going to be such a rout that the Democratic Party knew that Donald Trump was going to try to rig the election. I don't think that was remotely clear in April. That being said, we did just do the Electoral College episode and if you recall, on that episode, I spot Trump Georgia and I spot Trump North Carolina and I give Trump Texas. I think that that's, you know, where my money would go down because that's that's what I was doing I was basically kind of treating it like where would I put my money um so I spotted Trump North Carolina and Georgia this could be a much larger blowout worse than that 337 201 scenario I presented this could be something well above 350 for Trump a real disaster but the Democrats had no reason to really think that was going to occur back then and and if they did believe that If they did believe that, they've certainly not been having any of their debates around policy, around vice presidential picks, even right down to presidential nominees, with that baked into the cake, right? Why can't we have legalized marijuana on the platform for the Democratic Party? Oh, this election's so close. Is it? Is it? (laughs) Why can't we have the most progressive pick for vice president why can't we have our pence oh well, you know the election's close we gotta be able to win the center do we aren't we already winning the center i i I don't know that a lot of these things are so clear and what i will give the democrats credit for now is that trump has been talking about not wanting to do mail-in ballots not wanting to accept the results trying to schmoz it up here And I I mean, I think this tracks with what the one-term Trump model looks like, right? He's not going to go out quietly, and he didn't really win with uh, an overwhelming amount of legitimacy. He's certainly not going to accept his loss in a more decisive fashion with great legitimacy right like he was always going to challenge this also let us not forget that trump is staring down the barrel of a series of prosecutions in new york state when he gets out of office because the statute of limitations will not be expired if he is a one-term president. He'll, he'll get out and the, the, he'll still face a lot of those real estate problems that popped up for him. And he's not exempt. And really the whole nation of laws stuff, uh, law and order, as Trump's fond of saying it, is really premised on the idea that nobody is above the law. We'll get into that more with the attorney's general thing, but it's it's a really, really important concept. And it's not, oh, we prosecute Donald Trump because we want to treat Donald Trump the same way that Yanukovych treated Poroshenko in Ukraine back in the 2010s, right? Where, you know, we want to lock her up. We lock her up, which this, of course, Manafort brings over and introduces to Trump. And he says that in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, Poroshenko-Clinton. A little bit of a parallel there. But this isn't about just locking up your opponent. This isn't about punishing Donald Trump. It's about the idea that it doesn't matter that Trump was the president. If he was Donnie the bus driver, he should be facing the same sort of penalties. Our system of justice does work really different for famous people. And obviously we're seeing that with regards to Bill Clinton and the Epstein story. I, I mean like that this is actually of a piece. Like if you're upset. If you're one of the listeners here who's like, well, they don't talk enough about Epstein. Don't worry about the government doesn't talk enough about Epstein. We we don't, but like nothing's moving right now. So, I mean, I'm still following the story, guys. It's not like it's totally lost from my radar here. But if you're upset that these revelations are coming out about William Jefferson Clinton, the former president of the United States, and it seems as though there won't be any criminal justice for William Jefferson Clinton and his associations with Jeffrey Epstein. One, I feel you, brother. I don't think it's cool. I think I've been pushing for a long time. Since 2016. When people like Alex Jones were kind of bringing all this stuff up again. But I you know, took a second look at this stuff. And I was like, oh, you know, really. A party needs to distance themselves from William Jefferson Clinton. They do. They really earnestly do. But... If you're going to talk about Epstein and Clinton, you've got to talk about Epstein and Trump. They were definitely buddies, not to get lost in that tangent, but then let's bring it back into modern day here. This is why I'm so hung up with this idea of Trump's got to get prosecuted for the stuff that was uncovered during his administration that goes back to New York State and his real estate dealings. It doesn't matter that it's quote unquote, oh, so shameful for the former president to have to go through such a thing. Um, If you If you think that, like, I mean, or if you go, oh, well, a president should be above that. This is how Clinton's getting away with his little song and dance right now. And you might go, oh, that's more severe than what Trump's going through. Feel you on that too, brother. But you got to understand once you open up the door, the door is open and people who achieve a certain level of power, they just keep on pressing forward. They are, to use a term from the debate here, they're the uncancelable. So I think I actually dropped that line. But there are some people who achieve status so high that you can't cancel them, which is why they have to mysteriously commit suicide in a jail cell. All right. So let's talk about something else here. Let's uh, pivot into the unemployment benefits, because I've been pleasantly surprised by Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats right now, right now. Sidney Hoyer put a little bit of fear in me because Hoyer was already like, we're not hard, fast on the $600 a week. But Pelosi today, reading from Politico here, on CNN this morning with Jim Sciutto, suggested that Democrats won't negotiate on the $600 enhanced unemployment benefit. That's a weekly number. So... $600, according to Pelosi, she says that she views that as more connected to the unemployment rate. So if unemployment goes down, we can bring down that number. But if it doesn't go down, basically, you don't want to say to the American people, we have more infections, more deaths, we have more unemployment, more hunger, but you're now going to get $100 less a week. Makes all the sense in the world. Uh, I really appreciate the underpinning logic. And and one thing that I'm thinking about here um, is that for those of us I'm very much on this trolley uh, who are proponents of a UBI I think what has been arrived at inadvertently by by the pressures of coronavirus pressures making diamonds here is a really interesting model for implementing universal basic income which is an idea who I think time has come But when people want to start actually putting their political energy behind it, I think what we need is this model of a federal base, UBI, and then a statewide augment depending on the state. So there are some states, and you can pull up a map. I'm not going to go state by state here. But you can look at cost of living for different states, right? So what we would want... Ideally, is the federal government creating a baseline up to, you know, let's say 95% or something like that. And then states pick up that other 5%. Why do I say 95% and not 100%? I'm saying that because... There are some states, like especially when you get into the deep south, the cost of living is like 90 cents on the dollar or whatever. So at 95, they're actually making more than median. You need to be able to account for that. So you'd want to bring it up to the, the lowest state's baseline. Um, that state would probably not have to pass an additional UBI or be a very modest one that would be chained to like uh, the Consumer Price Index, that sort of thing. But w- what you would then have on... For all these other subsequent states, so for your Illinois, your New York State, your California, each one of those states would then have to pass a supplemental UBI to accommodate for their own cost of living there on top of that, but you'd have this baseline federal model coming in here doing most of the lifting, doing most of the lifting, and leaving the different states to you know pick up the rest of the share there, and, and some of those states can afford to do it. California, is, if it was a breakaway state, would be the sixth largest economy in the world. Or uh, that's probably not right, but it's, it's really large. I, I know that like, I know, it, I, I want to say that axiomatically, I heard that that's the sixth largest one in the world, but see, this is the thing guys, here's, here's something important. We pick up all these little phrases all the time, or like these little turns of phrase from the news or whatever. If you catch yourself saying something like that, just go and check it like here. You know what? You know what? I'm just going to roll with this moment right now. California's economy Uh, rank compared to world compared to world here you know what it'd be the 5th largest economy see my information was out of date but but kind of close kind of close but, but just just remember like you get those little idea nuggets in your head they're cool we like dropping idea nuggets who doesn't love dropping a nug but uh well, don't drop your nugs So they get hair on them then you can't use them and you gotta break them up you gotta that's a whole different conversation point is california fifth largest economy look up your idea nugs boom moving on all right people it is time To talk about attorneys general. Uh, So, William Barr testified before the House uh, Oversight Committee last week, and we arrived at various points in this hearing at the uncomfortable juncture that people like Eric Swalwell knew a year ago when they were calling for him to resign at the height of the politics of the Mueller probe when the politics actually matched the policy for a brief moment in time here. And then the politics moved on from actually discussing the policies on the table here. But Barr's double bind is that he has either not done a passable job as attorney general As in, he doesn't look at facts, he doesn't look at the president's tweets, he doesn't look at statements that people who are associates of the president make, he doesn't care what Roger Stone has to say about this or that, doesn't care what Trump and his administration has to say about this or that, he's not following any of that because he's just Mr. Magoo, can't see in front of himself, or he knows about all of that shit and he's helping Trump. Those are the only two places that things can go. We'll actually revisit Eric Swalwell here in a bit, but first and foremost, let's talk about the history. Of the attorney general. Brief history, brief history. And we're gonna get into like a brief enumeration of powers here, but I, I'm not going way deep on this. Congress passed the Judiciary Act in 1789. No, we're not doing a full accounting, which among other things established the office of attorney general. The original duties of this officer were quote to prosecute and conduct all suits in the Supreme Court. "...in which the United States shall be concerned and give their advice and opinion upon questions of law when required by the President of the United States or when requested by the heads of any of the departments." So then eventually this leads to the beginning of the bureaus because a lot of these laws are passed early on, right? They come up with the Constitution. You start seeing things like the Judiciary Act of 1789. Constitution's uh, 1787, right? So you've got this law... They'd already tried the Articles of Confederation. They came up with a superstructure for the state and how the federal government was going to work. But there's this obvious glaring hole in the structure of the document, which gets into how does the executive branch work, Um, which is fascinating in a lot of ways, right? Like, you know, how do the laws actually get executed? We say it's the president's job. But the president's got limited abilities and he can't try anyone and, or she can't try anyone. They can't try anyone. President can't write new laws. So what are the levers that the president can pull to execute stuff? And that's where bureaus start to arise. Um, The most interesting part of our government, and because it is the least established, and it's also one of the most robust. Bureaus that have this ability to create regulations, try people for violations under those regulations, and assess penalties under those regulations. It's actually an interesting um, end run around the separations of powers. And we start seeing the formation of bureaus um, and the bureaufication of the executive branch right at the onset. And that's why I bring up the Judiciary Act of 1789. And also, right at the onset, we see this problem of the attorney general, where do they live? What's their job? And we talked about this back in 2017, right? I th- I was kind of On this path, pretty much by myself, talking about how the reforms I'd like to see kind of brought about by the Comey incident, one of the most important ones would be to rehome the nature of the Attorney General's office, and I would move it probably more over to the Supreme Court side, where they, they'd live over there. Um, maybe they're appointed by the Supreme Court. Uh, maybe they serve a term. I, I haven't really thought about it. But one thing I would definitely do, and I think when we get into a history of the Attorney General of the modern vintage, uh, this is what I want you to kind of keep in your mind as the overthought here. Listen to how many of the problems arise throughout my 30-year accounting, starting from Janet Reno, going all the way to Eric Holder, and how many of them can you say trace back to a weird, problematic relationship with the person who was president at the time? So just bear that in mind. The Department of Justice gets established in 1870 to support attorneys general in the discharge of their responsibilities. So let's take a look at the role and the purpose of the attorney general. The main purpose is to supervise this Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice has many law enforcement agencies underneath it. So we have, for example, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, which, I mean, we know this, we know the, we know the interplay between Sessions, Jim Comey, and Rod Rosenstein, we remember all of that. Politics are involved in that. The Drug Enforcement Administration. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and Explosives. Shoot, a fellow could have a pretty good time in Vegas with all that. That's a Dr. Strange love reference for some of you. Bureau of Prisons. Office of Justice Programs. The U.S. Attorneys. The U.S. Marshals Office. And the U.S. Marshals, very important. Obviously, Bob Barr recently, or Bill Barr, recently used the U.S. Marshals to clear out the square so Trump could go and get his photo opportunity at the church. As the chief law enforcement officer of the federal government, the Attorney General serves many vital roles in addition to overseeing all of those bureaus. They represent the United States in court cases and legal matters. They give legal advice to the President and the Cabinet, and from time to time, they appear before the Supreme Court in important legal matters involving the national or federal government. So, I'm going to leave off early bars run. Suffice it to say, I debated including it, but I knew how long this episode was already going to be if we went through all of the other attorneys general. But really, if you needed to know why Barr didn't need to be attorney general this time around, you only need to acquaint yourself with Barr's first tenure as attorney general and how pivotal he was in making sure that many of the Iran-Contra related problems went away. So, I mean, that gets back to this issue of relationship between the president and attorney general. Absolutely. Uh, But I don't want to get lost in the weeds because we're going to spend so much more time talking about Barr here. And I want to be frank. I think Barr, I'm going to kind of cut to my ending right here. It doesn't matter. Because, I think Barr needs to be impeached still. Yeah, I know. We're only 100 days from the election, blah, blah, blah. Just because the Democrats have been dragging their heels on impeaching Bill Barr for 365 days doesn't mean that on the 367th day, I magically think that he shouldn't be impeached. No, this guy has been a hack. He has been a hack for more than a year. You knew this for a long time. They just chose to dither on it. So I want you to keep that in mind. But with, with Barr... The writing was on the wall in his first run. And a lot of those problems come from his problematic relationship with Herbert Walker Bush and himself. But then we move on to Bill Clinton and Janet Reno. Uh, I think maybe some people, you know, look at Janet Reno and th- they see a mark of progress here. Hey, it's our first female attorney general, right? Like That that is cool. That is cool. And like progress often takes imperfect forms. This is why a lot of people hate the shit out of Margaret Thatcher. I don't like Margaret Thatcher, but like, I also recognize that it's an important and good thing that women ascend to power, even if they're quote unquote, the wrong type of women, because I actually don't think that there is too much of the wrong type of representation. I think it's uh, more often brought up than it is actually in practice. But in the case of Janet Reno, we do arrive At several, let's keep it real, not great moments in her tenure. So, we get a 51-day Waco siege and a standoff that results in the deaths of 76 United States citizens, the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. The standoff begins February 28th, 1993, 12 days before Reno was installed as Attorney General. So, like, the fundamentals of this were already there. Reno's coming into this horrible thing to come into. That being said, Reno, after getting installed as the Attorney General, gets uh, this erroneous report from the Federal Bureau of Investigation that children are being raped at the compound. And that prompts Reno to authorize the storming of the compound, which she later goes on and takes full responsibility for, and takes full responsibility for the loss of life, but 76 deaths in an escalation that absolutely did not need to end in the deaths of 76 people, um, just, just a really bad usage of the feds. Again, worth noting here, that you know, she had she took this over from her predecessor. So you you play the hand that you're dealt, but she played the hand that she was dealt very poorly. That this is also true, and this continues. So uh, Clint Eastwood made a movie about this. Uh, but this is a real story, and it's it's definitely worth noting in terms of our abuse of the attorney general here. There was a leak to the media involving Richard Jewell. So you, you might remember there's uh, the Olympics in the '90s here in the United States, and. People erroneously fingered Richard Jewell, and this led to this widespread presumption of guilt of Richard Jewell. And there, th- because of that leak, and like that guy's life really did get busted up because of what the federal government did and what R- Janet Reno did. And she came forward and she said, "I think we owe him an apology. I regret the leak." Okay, well, the apology I guess is still there because regret is not apology. I know this from my own personal life. You can't regret. Regret is not. Is something south of apology. So then we get to our third debacle here, um, which is Elian Gonzalez and the return of Elian Gonzalez to his father. I know some of these are like, uh, uh, these are like moments from my childhood. So I got like weirdly nostalgic for all these news events because I remember having... Opinions about like Elian Gonzalez is when the light of opinions finally switched on here, and I thought that I remember at the time I, I thought that Elian Gonzalez shouldn't have to go back to Cuba because Cuba is not a great place. Um, I my opinion on that hasn't really changed. Uh, so anyways, there was an armed seizure of Elian Gonzalez. He was returned to his father. His father ultimately takes him home to Cuba. Um. Elian's mother and his stepfather had actually died in a dangerous trip by sea. So they had been trying to escape Cuba with Elian. Uh, and then his relatives lost custody in court. Local officials didn't want to enforce the ruling though, but Reno ends up making the decision to remove Elian Gonzalez from the house of a relative and that leads to a pretty horrific image of a federal agent like pointing a gun at Elian Gonzalez who is crying. And so, I mean, like, her tenure alone kind of gets to this idea of conflict of interest issues that arise when an attorney general is tasked with investigating the president, too, right? So, <laughs> I mean, think about it. During all of this, we talked about these other big three stories. What else is happening? Bill Clinton gets impeached. And I'm not even going to go into all of the Clinton land stuff. Uh, I, I know a lot of people go, what about all of that stuff? I mean, that gets a little bit more political, and I wanted to get to kind of the objective ones, like, you know, Elian Gonzalez, clear mistake, and a lot of that was just reading the politics of the time. because It wasn't like Cuba had a real position to strong arm us to get Elian Gonzalez back, right? The US federal government could have done whatever they wanted to do on that one. They could have, Clinton could have given him asylum, Clinton could have not given him asylum, any number of things. Any number of things. Um, And Reno is an apparatchik as part of that. Richard Jewell, I, I mean, Reno just wanted to have a quick resolution. Waco, on the other hand, yeah, you know, I mean, you see these coordination moments with the president of the United States using federal forces and that sort of thing. And then we finally get to the impeachment of William Jefferson Clinton and appointing a special prosecutor and the challenges of having the right type of special prosecutor looking into Bill Clinton? How hard are you really trying to get to the bottom of some of these things when Clinton lies or perjures himself? How seriously are we taking it? And I think, you know, Republicans at the time look back and they go, well, Janet Reno was helping out Bill Clinton throughout the entirety of those impeachment proceedings. And why are they able to make that argument? They could disingenuously make that argument regardless, kind of in the same way that Joe Biden's a socialist. It, does, it, it doesn't matter who the Democratic Party runs, right? They're all going to be socialists to a certain subset of the Republicans. You could do that with attorneys general to a certain extent, but it is extremely easy to do it. And, and, and the Trumpy people are finding this out now at Bar because the president picks who they want as their attorney general. And that attorney general essentially kind of arrives at the pleasure of the president, if not serves at the pleasure of the president, or they're not supposed to. But their arrival affects their service, shall we say. So let's move on. This list is not a complete uh, accounting of everyone who has officially held the title as attorney general. Worth noting, interesting footnote here at the tail end of the Clinton administration, you know who the attorney general is, is the little transitional AG a fella known as Eric Holder. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I've forgotten about that. So let's move on to John Ashcroft. Uh, maybe, maybe he's less problematic than Janet Reno. I hear some of you laughing. Stop that. Stop that. According to sworn testimony of two FBI agents interviewed by the 9-11 Commission, Ashcroft ignored warnings of an imminent al-Qaeda attack. In March 2004, the Justice Department under Ashcroft ruled that President Bush's domestic intelligence program, codenamed Stellar Wind, was illegal. Sometime after that ruling, though, Ashcroft becomes critically ill with acute pancreatitis. And so that leads the White House Counsel, future AG, and this is When people say there's a problem here, there's like a little bit of a circle fuck thing going on here. Alberto Gonzalez is the White House counsel. He'll go on to become the AG. So keep that in mind as you hear the rest of the story. Bush sends Alberto Gonzalez and his chief of staff, Andy Card, to Ashcroft's bedside in the intensive care unit to persuade the incapacitated attorney general to use his dead hand to document Uh, to reauthorize the program that the Justice Department had declared illegal and at an end. So later on, James Comey, and this is part of the reason why a lot of Republicans hate the shit out of us, because Comey blew the whistle on this. And he blew the whistle on this with Robert Mueller III of this reauthorization plan. Uh, They raced to the hospital, sirens blaring, and they tried to arrive ahead of Alberto Gonzalez and Andy Card. This, of course, made Comey a, a real enemy. And it's actually part of what made Obama pick Comey. Um, but then Comey didn't play a ball with Obama either. He was doing his own thing. So Ashcroft quote, summoning the strength to lift his head and speak refused to sign by the description, uh, in his interview with, uh, Jack Goldsmith, who was the head of the office legal counsel for justice at the time. Um, he was there in support of Ashcroft as was Patrick Philbin, who was an associate deputy attorney general. Uh, So you get Robert Mueller, who's also there rushing to the hospital, and he's speaking to Ashcroft Security Detail, ordering them not to allow Carter Gonzalez to have Comey removed from the hospital room because they were using Comey as the witness to prevent the reauthorization of Stellar Wind. Whole thing is one of the most kind of surreal movie-like Uh, moments of the Bush presidency, and, and it gets right to the heart of trying to abuse the office of the attorney general. And when Ashcroft wouldn't do what Bush needed him to do, guess who becomes the next attorney general? Alberto Gonzalez. I kind of already teased that one. But following the accounts of Abu Ghraib's torture and prisoner abuse, that scandal in Iraq... One of the torture memos was ultimately leaked to the press in 2004, in June. Jack Goldsmith, who was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, had already withdrawn the memos written by John Yu and advised agencies not to rely on them. Those memos written by John Yu more or less authorized the usage of torture. Goldsmith was forced to resign because of his objections. I think he's now over at lawfare. Like, he kind of got booted from the government here. And Attorney General Ashcroft issued a one-paragraph opinion reauthorizing the use of torture. Now, why would the Attorney General reauthorize the use of torture? Is it more likely that the Attorney General is in favor of reauthorizing the usage of torture because he's looked at the Constitution, thought about the Geneva Convention, the way human rights ought to work, watched several episodes of 24, put them into a blender, put it on frappe, and came up with some jurisprudence that said, you know, sometimes when when you get the 9-11s, you got to do the tortures. Or is it more likely that John Ashcroft is calibrating his position as the Attorney General of the United States of America to be in alignment with the political position of the President of the United States of America, who's the elected guy who put him in power? I'd argue like, yeah, obviously the blender thing sort of gives it away here, but no, it's, it's pretty obvious to me that Ashcroft was getting his policies in line and in harmony with the president. So if not serving at the pleasure of the president, serving to bring pleasure to the president's policies. And when Ashcroft could no longer do that, the president put in someone else who was not going to serve as an adversary. He put in Alberto Gonzalez, and Alberto Gonzalez starts off, uh, I mean, (laughs) I kind of like the thing on Alberto Gonzalez here. Gonzalez's tenure as U.S. Attorney General was marked by controversy regarding warrantless surveillance of U.S. citizens and the legal authorization of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, which were later generally acknowledged as constituting torture in the U.S. government's post-9-11 war on terror. So, I want to stop real quickly because I'm getting some questions about TikTok and how do I feel about TikTok. So, y'all, I did a segment uh, a couple of years ago talking about TikTok and how you need to not get on it because there's no reason to share data with the Chinese government. And if you were someone, anyone who was concerned about the U.S. government Getting access to your information, you should actually be doubly worried about non-US actors getting access to it, because then that that moves from the US to the whole world. Yeah, of course, the the government that is closest to you is the one that is most likely to oppress you. Duh. But China, as a nation state, is going to pass the United States, economically speaking. China, as a nation state, the Chinese Communist Party and their fascistic tendencies, they do not have our best interests at heart, guys. They're not this benevolent overlord. I, for one, welcome them. No, this is is not going to be cool. Um, I, I guess a better way of putting this, though, is... Let me ask you this. I mean, if you're fine with the Chinese Communist Party having this, will you link me up so that I can see all of your information? I mean, you know, if you're signed up for TikTok, you know, loop in your boy Novi. I, I'm, I'm local. I'm not part of the feds. I'm not, I'm not part of the national government. But you don't want me to see all your chat logs and all your information and all your data and your credit card stuff. Why is that? Why is that? Because you don't trust me? Or because you like me, and you think I'm okay, and you even generally trust me like in the normal, healthy way that we trust one another. But you also recognize that it's better to keep some shit fucking private. Um, Yeah, so my answer on TikTok, uh, the same way that I talked about government surveillance all through the aughts and all through the last decade here, is the idea of privacy is not that you should be entitled to uniform, complete privacy, but it's more this premise that there are certain things that we want to be able to keep to ourselves. And there are certain things that are better kept to ourselves. And if you think that it's a problem that us companies take our data and stuff, I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't know what we do to stop that at this point. Uh, but I'd love to, I'd love to have either one of the major political parties actually care about that piece of the puzzle rather than just, you know, boogeymanning Amazon like Tucker Carlson does or, you know, talking about uh, occasional little piecemeal reforms to the Patriot Act or whatever, the NDAA. Like, I mean, come on. Like, grousing about that stuff in the absence of an actual privacy act, it, it's, it's pointless. But we need a real privacy act. So if you're someone like me who believes that we need a real privacy act to be able to protect your data from companies and from nation states. Then no, obviously I'm not in favor of China getting it. If I'm not in favor of our own government getting it, why would I be in favor of another government getting it? That makes absolutely no sense. I mean, even if they were a good government, like let's just, you know, spit this in, let's assume I'm a tanky here. And then I think that the Chinese government are awesome, really good, nailing it, killing it. You might say, Killing it indeed. Uh, I still wouldn't want them to have access to my data. Why? Because they're not me. They're not, like, I, I don't even necessarily want, like, my parents to have access to some of this stuff. I don't want, you know, my significant other to have access to this stuff. It's my stuff. It's my information. It's my thoughts. It's my web browsing. Like, that, I ought to be able to just browse the damn web. And obviously, this is why you can use Tor and, you know, DuckDuckGo and other, you know, outlets and that sort of thing to a- anonymize yourself. Well, it's good stuff. But, yeah, no, I mean, if, if you're thinking about any of that stuff, you know, TikTok, yeah, it's bad. It's absolutely bad. All this has been a really dark trend of the tech era over the last two decades. Doesn't matter if the U.S. is doing it. Doesn't matter if China's doing it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, because it's all being done in the name of national security stuff so I mean like that's kind of the underpinning thing here too so when Facebook is sharing information with the government when the government is gathering stuff through you know um, bulk collection data and uh, I forget what it's called like section 205 or something like that whenever they're doing the bulk collecting of data metadata stuff that sort of thing why are they doing it same reason why China would be interested in doing it as part of a defense operation as part of a military operation defense sounds kind of defense is weird right because like everything that the defense department does or any defense initiative is usually offensive so yeah as part of it as an operation so yeah no gonzalez Uh, to bring us back to the attorneys general here gonzalez starts off and he's got this warrantless surveillance stuff and he's authorizing and he's authorizing torture why is he doing those two things why is he authorizing torture was it again because he you know drank from the same blender that ashtroff just did on the frappe setting and came up with this great jurisprudence that torture is awesome because he likes 24 and jack Bauer's dope no because bush who he used to work for said we're in favor of torture birdo and birdo was like absolutely we sure as hell are and so th- that So then the Attorney General's office mirrors the policy positions of the President, serving at the pleasure of the President. It's a problem. Warrantless surveillance. Why is he in favor of that? I think part of that's just, you know, we got to remember, post-9-11 froth, everyone's in in favor of, like, kind of suspending rights like this. So, like, uh, some of this is heartfelt conviction. Think about, like, your Louis Gohmerts of the world. But... The other part of this is that George Bush is not opening up debate for this inside the White House. What about our rights? No, Bush didn't give a shit. Bush is like, we well, surveillance. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Um, and then also Gonzalez comes in and he presides over the firing of several U.S. attorneys who had refused back-channel White House directives to prosecute political enemies, allegedly causing the office of the Attorney General to become improperly politicized. So this is another direct line of White House calls U.S. Attorney says prosecute these people, and they don't do it. Following the calls for his removal, Gonzalez ends up resigning, From the office in the best interest of the department. An idea uh, and a concept that seems utterly impossible with William Barr, but utterly necessary because one of the things that happens is when Gonzalez becomes Attorney General in 2005, he orders a performance review of all U.S. attorneys. Everyone, uh, this is actually kind of kind of like what Sessions did, kind of like what Barr did. Uh, this sounds familiar, yeah, yeah. Think about that. On December seventh, two thousand six, seven U.S. attorneys were notified by the United States Department of Justice that they were being dismissed after the George W. Bush administration sought their resignation. One more, Bud Cummins. Uh, don't laugh. Stop laughing. Who had been informed? of his dismissal in June 2006 announced his resignation on December 15, 2006, effective December 20, 2006, upon being notified of Tim Griffin's appointment as interim U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Arkansas. In the subsequent congressional hearings and press reports, it was disclosed that additional U.S. attorneys were controversially dismissed without explanation to the dismissee in 2005, 2006, and that at least 26 U.S. attorneys at various various times, were considered for dismissal. So this kind of reminds you a little bit of, if you remember, Preet uh now kind of popular on Twitter, has his own radio show. Not bad show, not bad show, not great show, but not bad show. Pre Barrara went through a similar thing. And, and I think, here's the important part. I think it'd be very easy to go, oh, well, that's just the way Republicans are. One, don't forget about Janet Reno. She was not awesome. But two, I, I think if you're seeing this play done over and over and over again with different actors, I submit to you that it's not necessarily as much the actors as it is the way the roles are positioned and the way the relationship of the roles are positioned. So you're able to do these U.S. attorney's purges of loyalists or non-loyalists or loyalty tests, loyalty purges because of the relationship between the president of the United States and this important part of the justice system. Um, And and in this sense, the executive branch really does need to be decoupled much further from this wing of the judiciary. Uh, And I I mean, one thing I keep hammering home on, but I, I know this is dense. There's a lot of history going on here. Keep this in mind. The Justice Department is part of the judiciary. The judiciary and the executive are kept separate for a reason, and, and it is very important that we create some sort of paradigm going forward. And this would be a progressive change, wherein the Attorney General's office is moved over to that judicial side of things, um, even closer to the legislative side. Although you know they're lawmakers, he'd be law enforcement. This is judicial. He is judicial and the fact that the, the attorney general's office, apologies for using he, the fact that the attorney general's office is housed inside the executive branch leads to these sorts of impulses and influences. Although U.S. attorneys can be dismissed at the discretion of the president. Critics claim that the dismissals are motivated by a desire to install attorneys more loyal to the Republican Party. In the word of Kyle Sampson, who was Alberto Gonzalez's former chief of staff, loyal Bushies. Gonzales helped to draft the January 2002 presidential order with authorized the use of military tribunals to try terrorist suspects. So this is the enemy combatant order. And as such, so now they don't have rid of habeas corpus. This gives the president the power to hold any non-citizen who he deems a terrorist or an accessory to terrorism in military detention, and subject to that military commission, as in non-constitutional trials, not unconstitutional, immoral, not necessarily, probably, but not necessarily, but just literally outside of the purview of the United States Constitution created by a military commission, inspired by uh the constitution shall we say subsequently the united states department of defense organized military tribunals to judge charges against enemy combatant detainees being held at gitmo in the early years the camp authorities did not allow foreign detainees access to attorneys materials supporting their charges and the executive branch declared them outside of the reach of due process under habeas corpus in Rasul versus Bush 2004, the United States Supreme Court ruled that they did have rights to habeas corpus and had to be provided access to legal counsel and an opportunity to challenge their detentions before an impartial tribunal. I mean, like, even that, still kind of a moderate ruling here in the sense that it had to be, quote-unquote, an impartial tribunal. Further, in 2006, the Supreme Court ruled in Hamdan versus Rumsfeld that trying Guantanamo Bay detainees under the existing military commissions known as the Military Tribunal was illegal under U.S. law, including the Geneva Conventions. Shit got really off the rails during the Bush administration. And I know as things have gotten unbelievably off the rails during the Trump administration that it's hard to imagine that things actually got as bad, if not worse, in different ways and competency can be very blinding in this sense. A lot of this is crimes of opportunity. Believe me, if Donald Trump was president, we we did an episode on this. If Donald Trump was president after nine 11, everything that we're talking about with Gonzalez and everything we're talking about with Ashcroft would have happened. Only it would have been like a thousand times worse because it would have been like a younger Donald Trump and like a younger Roger Stone advising him to bring in people who are still alive from Nixon land to come up with some of the worst ideas you've ever seen. Rumsfeld probably still shows up. Uh, a lot of these guys who you think are, slippery shits from the Bush administration still probably show up in the hypothetical Trump post 9-11 administration here. But a lot of what happened during the Bush administration was unbelievably bad, uh, including violating Geneva Conventions. So, you know, part of the reason why I darkly joke about this stuff is because Nancy Pelosi says, when the Democrats ascend to power in 2006 in the House and she becomes the first Speaker of the House, that she's not going to look into impeaching George Bush. He's just not worth it. The guy violated the Geneva Conventions. And I'm not even getting into the Iraq War. I'm talking about domestically. I'm talking about domestically using Guantanamo Bay, what he did through the Department of Justice, violated the Geneva Conventions which were only 50 years old. They're not that old. We're the key signatory. It doesn't mean anything if we don't put the teeth on it. And that's what's so important about that. Part of, part of what was so damaging in terms of our world global credibility when it comes to the Iraq war. I, I, I get lost on the Iraq war here. We got to get out of the Bush administration. We got to get out of the Bush administration. So Mike Mukasey ultimately takes over for Alberto Gonzalez when he is... In essentially, the way that they avoid impeaching George Bush is that Alberto Gonzalez resigns in disgrace, which, you know, like, look, it's not great, but it's better than William Barr continuing to press onwards and playing coy about whether or not he's going to resign when he's every bit as bad and was every bit as bad the first time around. So, Mukasey in 2007, when he ascends to power, uh, he changes the United States Sentencing Commission. Uh, In 2007, Mike Mukasey becomes the Attorney General. The United States Sentencing Commission amended the federal sentencing guidelines to lessen the disparity between crack cocaine, powdered cocaine, and part of that was racial disparity, essentially saying it's really crazy that there is a 100 to 1 penalty for crack cocaine versus regular cocaine. I mean, if you really think about this, it makes no sense. Changing powdered cocaine to crack cocaine absolutely does not change the amphetamine quality of the drug. It does not make the drug any less addictive. Uh, It it maybe makes it more addictive, but not a hundred times more addictive. And the commission only reduced this down to an 18 to one ratio, which is still dumb, not really founded by science and when people cite a racial disparity and bring up the racial outcomes brought up by that, there isn't a great jurisprudential challenge on the other side of it. So, you know, if you want to call it a racist policy, I'm at a loss as to what the contrary argument is. Michael Mukasey in the attorney general's capacity vehemently opposed this and testified against this change, warning that thousands of violent criminals may be released under the guidelines and endanger the community. Casey's move was criticized by advocates of elimination of crack powder disparity. No, I can't imagine why. But why did he do that? Why? Because he views this as a political thing. His job was to not bring political damage to the president. So, Casey calibrates his position and, and does the tough on crime thing. He does the tough on crime gimmick. So then we get to Barack Obama. You know, Barack Obama, constitutional law professor, promised that we were going to bring back the norms of constitutionality to the White House. And, like, look, I'm about to dig into his administration pretty hard here with Holder and Lynch. And, And they've got a lot of problems. Compared to Bush, who was openly and willingly and seemingly Seemingly enjoying violating the Geneva Convention. Obama found a way to rein in some of that. And, and this is kind of to his eternal demerit, find weird ways to. Spock logic himself. Uh, the, in the new Star Trek, there are these guys called the logic extremists uh, who are like these Vulcans who use logic and think about stuff so much that it leads them to these really extreme political outcomes that actually tend to be in violence. This is what Obama kind of did when he came up with the Terror Tuesdays thing in the drone program. Uh, and that gets us to one of the darkest marks on his presidency here, which was Eric Holder defending the legality of the drone strikes against alleged terrorists. Okay, alright, so they're using drones, we're not rolling in tanks, we're not invading Iraq, we're using drones. It's way less expensive, um, and you probably, if you want to talk about impact calculus, you're probably getting about the same bang for your buck as you would be getting by deploying massive amounts of troops, um, or, or something similar, but like at a way lower cost. Uh, so... A thing to keep in mind here uh and i get i get the wisdom of the policy on a financial sense right however we get to this moment with anwar al-alaki an american citizen who was killed by a drone strike without a trial they had not rendered justice onto him And Eric Holder said in defense of that, that the U S government's use of lethal force in self-defense against a leader of Al Qaeda or an associated force who presents an imminent threat of violent attack would not be unlawful. So let's unpack that one a little bit there, buddy. So was this self-defense like where, where is the imminent attack? If I say there's an imminent threat of a violent attack, that's you are throwing a throwing a fist in my face. Now, if you're throwing a fist in my face, I could shoot you, and you know, go. He was attacking me. It, most people would go, well, jeez, Chris, that was that was a little bit extreme. Maybe even if I just brandished a knife and I, you know, sliced you open real good, you go. I mean, he was just trying to punch you, Chris. That's a bit extreme. Anwar Al-Awlaki was a United States citizen, and they had these meetings in the White House. Every week on Tuesday, they'd call him Terror Tuesday, and they would show uh, what they called terrorist playing cards to Obama and real quickly have a discussion with Obama, where Obama essentially served as judge, jury, and executioner. And again, got a lot of respect for Obama. I I think there's a lot of things about him that are certifiably good things about his presidency, but the man took it upon himself to sit there and go thumbs up, thumbs down with people's lives like a Roman emperor. And it's not as though Trump or Bush wouldn't do the exact same thing. I mean, Bush just wish he came up with the idea. Trump probably has done this a hundred times. We just haven't heard about it because he's been doing so many other things. Obama's giving these thumbs up and these thumbs down on this. The story gets worse though. So we got on, we're all lucky. You might go, okay, well, he was a radical cleric, Chris. Okay, but he didn't pose an imminent threat. I, I mean, the guy was just wandering around there doing his sermons and stuff. And was he preaching violence? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not denying that. Uh, but Holder outlines a three-part test to affirm the lawfulness of these drone strikes. These drone strikes on people, U.S. citizens in some cases, without trial. One, the terrorist has to pose an imminent threat of violence to the United States. Two, capture is not possible and the operation is conducted in a manner consistent with the principles of the law of war. At the time, al was an alleged leader and recruiter for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and Holder later stated that, quote, due process and judicial process are not one in the same, particularly when it comes to national security. Again, why is Holder talking like, out of all sides of his mouth here? What, like, what accounts for these attorneys general? talking in these weird ways it's to harmonize their relationship with the president holder actually famously sort of said too when he came into office and republicans are quick to point this one out but they're not wrong about it he said on the president's wingman he shouldn't be the president's wingman the attorney general should not have that mindset but barr has that mindset holder had that mindset mucasey had that mindset gonzalez certainly had that mindset even Ashcroft, to a certain extent, had that mindset. He had a little bit of a will there as evidenced by the hospital scene. But like, I mean, the, the profiles and courage in this history of attorneys general thing, they're more a bug rather than a feature. Because what is supposed to be the feature, it, Holder gets it. The attorney general is supposed to be the president's wingman. They shouldn't be, but the way that the job is currently designed without any changing or amendments to the position, the next attorney general is going to be Joe Biden's wingman or wing woman, wing person, doesn't matter, whatever you want to call them. They're going to be there to make sure that the president has their vision of reality enacted at the justice department. They are not there to be an independent hand of justice. Some civil liberty advocates have described the incident as an extrajudicial execution. I certainly would. Um, he. I think Anwar al-Awlaki was in- entitled to a, t- a trial. But let's go on further here. Things get more fucked up. Abdul Rahman Anwar al-Awlaki, he was not even 20. He was a 16-year-old American of Yemeni descent who was killed while eating dinner at an outdoor restaurant in Yemen by a drone airstrike ordered by Barack Obama on October 14, 2011. 16 years old. His father, Anwar al-Awlaki, was alleged to be the operational leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And so Anwar was killed by a CIA drone strike, also ordered by Obama two weeks prior. But then Obama authorized the drone strike that killed his son. Two U.S. officials speaking on the condition of anonymity stated that the target of the 2011 airstrikes was not... Abdul Rahman Anwar al-Awlaki, an Egyptian believed to have been a senior operative. Um, Two U.S. officials speaking on the condition of anonymity stated that the target of the October 14, 2011 airstrike was... Ibrahim Albana, not uh, al kid. This guy was an Egyptian who was believed to be a senior operative in AQAP. Another U.S. administration official speaking on the condition of anonymity essentially said that al was a bystander who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and stated that the U.S. government did not know that Mr. Al-Awlaki's son was there before the airstrike was ordered. When pressed by a reporter to defend the targeted killing that resulted in this 16-year-old boy's death, Robert Gibbs, the White House press secretary, deflected the blame to his father, saying, I would suggest to you that he should have had a far more responsible father if they're truly concerned about the well-being of their children. I don't think becoming an Al-Qaeda jihadist terrorist is the best way to go about doing your business. Well, how's the kid supposed to have a father when you just blew him up two weeks prior? Yeah, no, it's a real stain on the presidency, this entire chapter. It's embarrassing. Um, and that also kind of lays in, with, to a lesser extent, with the Mavi Marmara incident. I don't want to get lost on this. But this one in particular, like there, there's no jurisprudence here, right? There's no, there's no right, no wrong here. This kid was 16. He didn't do anything. Might he have done something someday? Possibly. Probably. I mean, he killed his dad. I, I, you know, like if he became radicalized after that, would we be shocked by that result? Would that be uncommon from the events of history? But this is a minority report. This is, you know, this is supposed to be the United States of America. He hadn't done anything yet, and we killed him. And when we killed him, there was no accountability. And so you go, oh, we'll see you, Obama. He was really horrible. Well, January 29, 2017. Anwar al Alaki's 8 eight-year-old daughter, Nawar al alaki 8 eight-year-old daughter, the eight-year-old half-sister of Abdul Rahman, was killed in a raid on Yakla, a commando attack ordered by President Donald Trump. So as though the United States just not finished fucking over the al family, they had to get him real good throughout the entire 2010s. Just trying to scorch that earth. In May 2011, House Oversight Committee Chairman... God, here's a name from the past. uh, Don't miss him, though. Daryl Issa and Chuck Grassley sent Eric Holder a letter requesting details on Operation Fast and Furious. Oh, yeah. Forgot that I even added this on there. Yeah, Fast and Furious was a gun thing that didn't work out the way it ought to. 2,000 weapons ended up in Mexican cartel drug gangs. Not great. Uh... As though those drug gangs weren't going to end up getting weapons. Like To break that down a little bit more, I'm blowing by it because, I mean, you talk about all these other problems that Eric Holder has, and that's the one that the Republicans chose to focus on, this Fast and Furious thing. So, like, yeah, the cartels over the 2010s got a real foothold in Mexico. And I was saying back then... That the Obama administration, if they really wanted to help Mexico, should treat Mexico like a failing state and work with the government to try to help create some stability, especially in areas that are really being captured by the narcos, um because the alternative is what has happened now, which is that the narcos have come in and are serving in certain parts of the country as like the de facto government there. And you don't have like a full- on civil war, but you do have a real dissolution of where federal authority kind of fully covers the landmass of Mexico. It's a real problem. Um, Eric Holder was trying to do a sort of like a track and trace move. Um, The ATF was trying to do a track and trace move with the guns. Um, so this is what Fast and Furious was. They were going to sell these guns, see where they go into Mexico, and try to use that as a way of, you know, figuring out who the Narcos were and, and getting them. But instead, 2,000 of those weapons just ended up reaching Mexican gangs. They were real guns. Like, they weren't like dummy guns. They were real guns. That, that was how the whole operation was supposed to work. Uh, not an ideal scenario. Not an ideal scenario. Now let's move on to lynch lynch is probably the least bad of any of these attorneys general but even then loretta lynch not without her problems so in october 2016 lynch comes in and she removes fbi agents and federal prosecutors not great in this case it's from the death of eric gardner and replaces them with agents from outside of new york now i like look you might go, probably a good thing that Lynch actually tried to step up the prosecution of Eric Garner. And obviously, given the way Eric Garner played out, wasn't awesome. So I I get why Lynch was doing it. That said, do have a little bit of a feds overstepping into local politics sort of thing there. So, you know, you could see how, you'd see why people would say it was, quote, highly unusual at the time. And certainly... I would be worried as someone to see, like, the Attorney General, like Barr, use Lynch's precedence as a reason of removing different people. I I mean, in fact, you know, he could use that for some of the things that he's done. Uh, And so, in, in that sense, I don't know. You, you gotta, you gotta really choose your battles here, and that, like that, really is the the big thing with Lynch, right? So, June 27, seventh, twenty sixteen, y'all probably remember Lynch and Bill Clinton meet privately aboard Lynch's Justice Department jet. So it's like official government property, which is parked on a ramp in Phoenix, Arizona, and the story was broken by Christopher Sign, um, who was an ABC fifteen reporter. So, like, they were trying to keep this quiet. The intent was for this to be hush-hush. Uh, then they act like, oh, yeah, of course we're mean. We always mean. We're friends. We are. The following day during a press conference in Phoenix, Lynch denied the conversation was about the email investigation going on at the Department of Justice done by the FBI or any matters pertaining to it and said that the discussion only involved personal social topics such as travels, golf, and grandchildren. If you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. Um, and all you need to do is sub up for $50 a show on patreon.com. <laughs> July 1st 2016, Lynch swore she would fully accept the recommendation of the FBI and the prosecutors regarding the email probe, but admitted that she understood how the meeting was raising, quote, questions and concerns and that she certainly wouldn't do it again implying that it wasn't a good idea in the first place. So, I I mean, this is the issue, too. And this, this put Comey in this really uncomfortable position where I think, rightfully so, he looked at the moves of Lynch and was like, okay, but she's a political hack. And how am I really supposed to do this if she's trying to leak stuff to Bill Clinton? And anything I talk to, anything I say to Lynch might find its way back to Bill Clinton. Certainly would seem justified in saying that. And Comey ends up talking about that a little bit more here. Um, And he did say that the meeting was a deciding factor in his decision to act alone to update the public on the Clinton probe. So now let's move on to Jeff Sessions. You guys, of course, remember a lot of this stuff. We talked about James Comey. But right when he comes into office, oh, this is going to sound familiar, March 10, 2017, 46 U.S. attorneys... Um are fired. Dana Bente tries to resign, and uh, Rod Rosenstein also tries to resign. Trump declines the resignations. I forgot about the declined resignation of Rod Rosenstein. Trump demands that the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, makes James Comey resign. Now, the problem is that Jeff Sessions had recused himself from the Russia investigation because of his own conflicts of interest when it came to Russia was a proper thing for him to do but that left the job to rod rosenstein so what rod rosenstein had to do is come up for a reason to fire james Comey. that wasn't just oh the president's mad at you because like that is not actually the right reason to do that the initial draft however was dictated by trump and written up by stephen miller it was several pages long and described by people familiar with it as quote a screed with quote an angry and meandering tone. Oh, they're so nice to this guy. Like, like the, the problem with Trump is that they sanitize just how petty and vicious and underthought some of his actions are. Now... Don the White House counsel, who is advising the president, which is also why you should never be able to move the White House counsel to the attorney general's office like Alberto Gonzalez. He was alarmed at the tone and advised Trump, don't send the letter, don't send the letter, please don't do that. Um, So then they met with Rosenstein and Sessions and they came up with a way of firing Comey or a reason to justify firing Comey because they were upset about the Clinton email investigation. Now, do any of you any of you listening to this program, really believe that Donald Trump thought that Hillary Clinton got a raw deal in the email investigation, that she was the one who got screwed over during that investigation. Do you think Jeff Sessions does? Rod Rosenstein? Really? No. No, you don't. They were, they, they were using the Attorney General's office to enact policy of the president, 30 years of this it's not Democrats it's not Republicans it's not just Trump this is a fissure that has been just wide open and it's got to be shored up so they fire Comey over this ridiculous fig leaf of the Clinton email investigation and Democrats because they're so hung up on this election and it had nothing to do with Hillary um, the, because of that, the, a lot of them are okay with this, or they're kind of like, well, you know, Comey had it coming, Comey had it coming. Um, and, and so then you get to on May 9th, the statement by the white house, where they say that Comey had lost the support of the rank and file of FBI employees. But then on May 10th, Trump comes out and he spins it again. He said he fired Comey cause quote, he wasn't doing a good job. And then on May 11th, he said that he was going to fire Comey regardless of any recommendation from the justice department. Why? Of course, he also maintains that there's no link between him and Russia. This is Trump at the same time. On May 9th, though, just to wind it back a couple of times, Trump actually hired a law firm to send a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee denying any business ties or connections to Russia, with some exceptions, Um, And then the law firm that he ended up using to do that ended up having deep ties with Russia and had been selected as Russia's law firm of the year in 2017. You can't make that shit up. One other thing that I want to spotlight, which goes back to this notion of serving at the pleasure of the president or getting onto that spectrum of serving at the pleasure of the president. One thing that Trump has definitively made worse than Bush, Obama, Clinton is introducing this notion of, I want to have your letter of resignation in my desk, essentially saying, I want to have your pink slip. I want you to draft it up. I want you to write it up. I want you to explain why you're quitting. And I want to have it in my pocket because to have your letter of resignation in my pocket is essentially to have you in my pocket. And so. On November 7th, 2018, Jeff Sessions ends up resigning at Trump's behest, but it's been reported that his letter of resignation had been submitted on a prior occasion, so Trump had had that already. That brings us up to William Barr. So, William Barr, in June of 2018, sent a 20-page unsolicited legal memorandum to the Department of Justice. I talked about it on this program here, I was pretty upset about it, because he sent it to and discussed it with the president's legal team. So he was already setting up this relationship with Donald J. Trump. And he claimed that Robert Mueller had no authority to investigate Donald J. Trump for obstruction of justice. So that's in June, 2018. I wonder why he becomes Trump's favorite for the nomination for attorney general. And so he takes office after sweaty headed Matt Whitaker in February of 2019, and immediately Barr refuses to recuse himself from the Russia Mueller investigation, despite sending a 20-page unsolicited legal memorandum to the Department of Justice explaining his position, notwithstanding that June 2018 memo that clearly exhibited bias. So keep that in mind. Whenever you hear Barr, he uses the term Russiagate, a lot. He likes that Russia Gate framing. It's popular with the Matt Taibez of the world too. But that Russia Gate framing is a pejorative to dismiss away anything involving the Mueller probe, and that's Barr waiving the fact that he is using an improper relationship with the president as Attorney General. Like that, the, the he is serving to advance the president's political agendas, and the same way that Sessions was as well. And you can get into some of his sentencing guidelines and stuff, and the things that he chose to ignore on guidance documents. That's him advancing his own political agenda and him advancing Trump's as well. But to keep us on the bar track here, when Mueller filed his report of his investigative findings with Barr, Bard chose, uh, unsolicited as well, to summarize them in a letter to Congress that can only be characterized charitably as a whitewashing, as much of the wrongdoing that Moeller had uncovered was unduly sanitized. I mean, some of those lines were, you know, the term's been bandied about a lot in recent years, but Orwellian sanitizations of what actually occurs in as detailed inside of the Mueller report. In fact, when a redacted version of the Mueller report was released in April of 2018, and we went through a good chunk of that, I I did as many episodes as essentially I had time to do back then. I wish I had had time to do the whole report. But fact-checkers and news outlets reported, and, and I definitely was able to get into this, that Barr had deliberately mischaracterized the Mueller report and its conclusions. There's no other way to... Come away from reading the Mueller report, actually read it, actually try to like digest the information, take the notes, or even just listen to uh, several of the episodes that I did there. If, if you've never gotten a chance to dive in, cause I go pretty much line by line and try to build a really kind of complete picture of each one of those sections for you. Um, it's impossible to read that stuff and spend any amount of time with the Mueller report text and look at Barr's letter as anything other than doing work for the president to cover him up. In February of 2020, career Justice Department prosecutors recommended a seven and nine year sentence for Roger Stone, who had been convicted of lying to Congress about Russian interference in the 2016 election. Trump tweets out, can I allow this miscarriage of justice? Later that very same day, Barr responded by filing a new sentence memorandum saying that the initial recommendation was too harsh and that it would not be appropriate or serve the interests of justice, notwithstanding that it was the range indisputably called for by the federal sentencing guidelines. Four career prosecutors who had submitted the memorandum immediately resigned. Immediately resigned. And Trump publicly tweeted his thanks to Barr for intervening in the case as he had. Now, you could say, oh, Trump didn't know, and I mean, in the same way that you could go Russia, if you could find the 30,000 emails, it'd sure be great, and then Russia, as reported in the Mueller report, I guess this is why you've got to deny the Mueller report, Um, as reported in the Mueller report, the same day that Trump says that, Russia starts looking for the emails on the internet, Um, you could say that Trump's just saying stuff, and that he's just, you know, speaking his mind or whatever, but... There's a clear relationship here that's been established. And Michael Cohen, I think, said it just right when he said the president speaks in a code and the people who are successful around him know how to speak that code. Um, and Michael Cohen was like, I know how to speak that code. I know, I know his code. May of this year, May of 2020, in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit seeking disclosure of the entire Mueller report, Judge Reggie Wilson of the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, nominated by George W. Bush, found that Barr had advanced a, quote, distorted and misleading account of the report's findings and that his statements regarding the purported reasons for prior redactions of the report lacked credibility. So again, what does this show us? This shows us that Barr, much like many of his predecessors, arrives at these jurisprudential conclusions that do not scan with a fundamental reading of the facts in the world as we know them or jurisprudence as we kind of know it philosophically speaking. What it tracks far tighter with is is what does the president want done and Barr makes it easy for us right like he's basically like I want to be your best friend Trump and the Trump's like I love you so much Barr and they have this amazing relationship and he's like sending in letters please hire me I will be a total hack for you so like like the dots are really easy to connect here and yet still uh with some of my friends but you can see this uh, I mean you you can see this but this Again, for some of those same friends, this is not limited to Barr. It's just the most obvious with Barr. But you could see this with Janet Reno and you could see this with Eric Holder too. Barr and Trump just make it naked. I mean, it helps that Trump has like that catchphrase of where's my Roy Cohn or that like apocryphal story of him grousing about wanting his Roy Cohn in the White House. Barr is serving as that role for him in uh, his late adult life here as he's an adult man-child. Barr thought he could slip one past Emmett Sullivan. Uh, this may here uh, who is presiding over the Flynn case, but he miscalculated badly and Sullivan ends up appointing John Gleason to investigate Barr's motion for dismissal because Barr was trying to dismiss the Flynn charges uh, and the charges in the ruling in the Flynn case. Here's the deal though. remember this Flynn pled guilty twice. So why oh why would Bill Barr? want to dismiss the charges against Mike Flynn. Let's go back to that Flynn prosecution, though. Remember Gleason? Gleason filed a 73-page brief in the case involving Flynn, stating that Barr's attempt to deep-six the Flynn prosecution was, quote, a gross abuse of prosecutorial power, and that the attorney general had given special treatment to a presidential ally, thereby undermining public confidence in the rule of law. It would be very easy to say impeach and remove Barr, and we should impeach and remove Barr, but this is only possible because the pathway is there. You need to scorch the earth that Barr walked on. On June 24th, a divided panel of the D.C. Circuit ordered Judge Sullivan to dismiss the case, but the panel's decision is likely heading for unbank and eventually a Supreme Court review. It was wildly improper. Sullivan is rightfully pissed. You might remember that Sullivan, when he looked over the charges, actually kind of lost his temper in the courtroom and said that what Flynn was doing was, quote, treasonous. Uh, and I'm almost certain that what he was referring to was his relationship with Turkey and how he was working with Turkey to kidnap someone who had asylum in the United States. That brings us to the case of Jeffrey Berman, which is our most recent example, and it's from just last month. And there are several things at play here. This is of a piece with other departmental purges of people not sufficiently loyal to the president. And so like that, there's a culture of abuse of power. That is very much at play in the termination of Jeffrey Berman. But this one gets much more granular, much more precise in the sense that it's a question of was it Bill Barr or Donald Trump who fired Berman and aren't they one in the same? And it appears that Barr and Trump kind of forgot this, which is why they ended up in this situation in the first place. So on Friday night uh, back in June, Berman was like, I'm not going to be fired. You're going to have to remove me from office. And it raises question of who has the authority to remove him. And so it's not settled by the Supreme Court in terms of precedent and federal statutes conflict on that. This set up a possibility of a protracted fight in court until Barr told Berman that Uh, the next day that the president himself had fired him and Berman acquiesced. So Barr ended up having to do here because Barr was trying to get rid of Berman clearly. um, And Trump was making it harder by going like, I was not involved in that. And he was giving all these statements that were actually making it much, much harder for Barr to get around all of this. So what he ended up having to do is work in concert with Donald Trump to reverse engineer the cover-up. For the abuse of power here. So, even the letter that Barr ends up writing Berman sort of tells on Barr here. So, the Trump administration adopts this interpretation in Barr's letter, but in Barr's letter, Barr writes, Because you have declared you have no intention of resigning, I have asked the president to remove you as of today, and he has done so. So it still creates this weird little circle fuck of like, I'm the initiator of the events. Yeah, Trump fired you, but I'm the one who fired you. But, and I was also the one who was the catalyst of this. And then Trump confuses matters further by saying that he wasn't involved. So why did we fire Berman, too? This is not actually as important um, to just the sheer issue of the, the TikTok of how that firing went down. That speaks to the real problem we're talking about here. But why did he get fired? Berman was looking into, uh, he was involved in the prosecution of Michael Cohen. He was looking into associates of Rudy Giuliani. Um, who were said by prosecutors to have been involved in an effort to recall uh, the U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine, you might remember Marie Yovanovitch, Um, There is an investigation into Giuliani himself and issues involving his bizarre lobbying practice. There's a great episode of ProPublica called Giuliani Inc., um, which is just fascinating as to what Rudy is doing for money these days. And one wonders how legal it is. Uh, They were looking into a Turkish state-owned bank um, and charges that it conspired to undermine the United States Iran sanctions regime. So sanctions. Sanctions. Iran. Sanctions. Iran sanctions regime. I've been taping for a minute here, guys. So, like, uh, you would think, you know, Republicans strong on Iran. Not when it comes to Turkey. Why are they squishy on Turkey? Well, it's because Flynn has all those relationships to Turkey, and Trump wanted to have towers built in Turkey, too, and he's way too cozy with Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Um, Erdogan knows how to play both sides of the aisle here. You know, we've talked about him with Ilhan Omar, but he definitely knows how to play the United States on the Republican side too. So like, that's why we're going after Berman here. But why did all of this play out the way it did? because of that murky relationship between the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, and the President of the United States. And then we we see this yet again, too, in early June. Um, it's as though the relationship is so problematic between these two offices that they're bound to create conflicts like this and just throw it into our face to the point where you question if they're even conflicts anymore. If it's just the way quote-unquote, it's supposed to work. It's not the way it's supposed to work, but this is, this is just the way it will work. Um, it's doing like it ought to, um, not necessarily as it's supposed to, but as it ought to if you follow kind of the laws of entropy in power in society and that sort of thing. So then we get to the photo opportunity at the church here. In early June, you remember the tear gassing of peaceful protesters and clergy members um, and using security forces with rubber bullets and a type of tear gas so that Trump could go and get his photo op holding the Bible upside down. And that brings us up to what was the impetus for writing this episode, which was Barr's testimony to the House at the end of July. In particular, this exchange with Eric Swalwell. I don't understand how the Democratic caucus left that day saying, well, that was really interesting, but I don't think we can hold Barr to any account before the election. This is just so glaring. So let's go to this exchange between Eric Swalwell and William Barr. Gentleman yields back uh, Mr. Swalwell.
1: Mr. Barr, have you ever intervened other than to help the President's friend get a reduced prison sentence for any other case where a prosecutor had filed a sentencing recommendation with the court?
2: A sentencing recommendation?
1: Yeah. Have you ever intervened other than that case with the President's friend?
2: Not that I recall if you does, does that
1: seem like something you'd recall
2: where you would well I'm, I'm saying I can't really remember my first if you let me finish the question. I, I, I can't remember deal, 30 I years ago I was Attorney General as Attorney General now uh, But uh, no I didn't but that's because issues come up to the Attorney General within a dispute and I have never heard so, of a dispute Mr. I've never heard of a dispute in the department. Mr. Where Porter. line
1: prosecutors threatened to quit well, it's a pretty uh, because, big deal, because, and they... they be because of the because so of a
2: Barr, discussion over sentence Americans from both this. parties
1: are concerned that in Donald Trump's America, there's two systems of justice. One for Mr. Trump and his cronies, and another for the rest of us. But that can only happen if you enable it.
0: And when we're talking about reforming the position of Attorney General, what we need to look to is reforming the dynamic so that the Attorney General can't serve, as Eric Holder put it, but ironically, William Barr has done a far better job living up to, can't serve in this role as, quote, the president's wingman.
1: At your confirmation hearing, you were asked, do you believe a president could lawfully issue a pardon in exchange for the recipient's promise to not incriminate him. You said, no. Not not to what? That would be a crime. You were asked, could a president issue a pardon in exchange for the recipient's promise to not incriminate him? And you responded, no, that would be a crime. Is that right?
2: Yes, I said that.
1: You said a crime. You didn't say it'd be wrong, you didn't say it'd be unlawful, you said it'd be a crime. And when you said that, that a president swapping a pardon to silence a witness would be a crime, you were promising the American people that if you saw that, you would do something about it. Is that right?
0: That's right. For the Democratic caucus, this right here should have been the red line. Barr explicitly promised lawmakers, Congress, that he would treat this as a crime if he observed it. I understand why Swalwell is using the rhetorical framing of the American people, but one of the things that the American people obfuscates other than the fact that you're not actually promising, quote, the American people, capital A, capital P, like this is 330 discrete individuals. More importantly, though, it obfuscates the fact that what really happened here is that Barr lied to Congress during his confirmation hearings. And if Congress is going to have any teeth in their oversight role of the extra constitutional bureaucratic state, one of the red lines that Congress must hold the line on is when these unelected bureaucrats lie to Congress during the course of their confirmation proceedings. If they make promises that they do not keep and they say they're going to go one way and in fact go the extreme opposite way in such a way that Congress would not have confirmed them, That should serve as a red line. And here is Barr just stepping over it saying, what are you going to do, Swalwell and the Democrats? Not much, it looks like. Now,
1: Mr. Barr, are you investigating Donald Trump for commuting the prison sentence of his longtime friend and political advisor, Roger Stone? No. Why not? Why should I? Well, let's talk Mm -hmm. about that. Mr. Stone was convicted by a jury on seven counts of lying in the Russia investigation. He bragged that he lied to save Trump's butt. But why would he lie? Your prosecutors, Mr. Barr, told a jury that Stone lied because the truth looked bad for Donald Trump. And what truth is that? Well, Donald Trump denied in written answers to the Russia investigators that he talked to Roger Stone during the time Roger Stone was in contact with agents of a Russian influence operation. There's evidence that Trump and Stone indeed did did talk During that time, you would agree that it's a federal crime to lie under oath. Is that right? Yes. It's a crime for you, it's a crime for me, and it's certainly a crime for the
0: President of the United States. Is that right? Yes. This is a perfect illustration of the improper relationship between the Attorney General and the President. The Attorney General is presented with information from investigators and prosecutors that the President during the course of this investigation, this intelligence investigation, presented false information to the investigators and the prosecutors. And the attorney general, when confronted with that information, chooses not to action on it as the attorney general or the FBI or the Department of Justice writ large would naturally do with any other citizen of the United States, but instead to bury it under the rug for the president of the United States. So if Donald Trump lied to the Mueller investigators, which you agree would be a crime, then frankly, he ought to be impeached over that alone. In addition to a number of other things, the Democrats left off their skinny list of impeachment items. Then Roger Stone was in a position to expose Donald Trump's lies.
1: Are you familiar with the December 3rd, 2018 tweet where Donald Trump said Roger Stone had shown guts? By not testifying against him?
2: No, I'm not familiar with that.
0: You don't read the president's tweets? No. This is also an important moment in this exchange between Swalwell and Barr. Here's why. What Barr's saying is that habitually, either through willful ignorance or sheer incompetence, Barr is missing important information that would speak. To the mens rea of people either under investigation or under prosecution by the Justice Department. So he's making decisions without having the full range of information and calibrating it in. Well, there's a lot of evidence in the president's treats,
1: Mr. Attorney General. I think you should start reading them because he said Mr. Stone showed guts. But on July 10 of this year, Roger Stone declared to a reporter. I had 29 or 30 conversations with Trump during the campaign period. Trump knows I was under enormous pressure to turn on him. It would have eased my situation considerably, but I didn't. The prosecutors wanted me to play Judas. I refused. Are you familiar with that Stone statement?
2: Actually, I'm not.
1: So how can you sit here and tell us why should I investigate the President of the United States if you're not even aware of the facts concerning the President (laughs) using the pardon or commutation power to swap The silence of a witness.
0: The question is, is Barr willfully ignorant or woefully ignorant? And Barr, I don't like the guy, but he's clearly not stupid. This ignorance to these statements that speak to the mens rea of the president and Roger Stone, this ignorance is willful. And the other thing that Barr isn't saying is that a lot of his actions can only be accounted for by thinking about them in tandem with the president's office. You don't have this synchronized usage of the U.S. Marshals to clear out protesters at the church so the president can get a photo op unless the attorney general's office and the office of the president are working hand-in-hand like a wingman should. In fact... This hand-in-glove relationship got so tight later on in the month, just four weeks prior to this hearing, that you get the firing of Berman. That's the real issue, and the question is, what are the Democrats going to do about it? Their answer would be, well, we're going to have an election. That presumes they're going to win the election. I submit to you that perhaps good governance Doesn't presume that every upcoming election is in the bag
1: Mr. Attorney General, let's turn to the Michael Cohen case
0: Are you aware sir that Michael Cohen after
1: being released from prison was asked to not engage with the media? Including to write a book were you aware that that was going to be asked of him? Was I aware? Yes. No Do you know if anyone else in your department was aware? Uh, Maybe I should tell you what happened
2: why don't you tell us what happened? Okay. He was furloughed from the Bureau of Prisons.
1: No, no. Why don't you tell us why he was asked to I will tell you. Because
2: something that people don't seem to understand is that his home confinement was not being supervised by the Bureau of Prisons. Now, it, the was Bureau being, of Prisons. it was being supervised by the Probation Office, which is part of the U.S. court system. And Are it was the U.S. court system that had the requirements about and not yes, writing. that
1: U.S. court system called your actions retaliatory. Do you um, agree with that? No. So
2: All I know is what, I, what has been said in court before the judge and in the record, Mr. which Bar- is that the individual uh, was then called by the U.S. court system saying that this guy Cohen is uncooperative. He's not agreeing to the conditions. And at that point, a Bureau of Prisons person made the decision that he was no longer eligible for home conditions
1: confinement. Conditions that a federal judge said no other inmate had ever been asked of in his experience. Mr. Barr, you told ABC News that the president's tweets sometimes make your job impossible. But sir, your job is only impossible if you enable the president's corrupt schemes. Now yield back.
0: Over the last hour, I've been making the case to you that there is a real problem when it comes to the relationship of the Department of Justice, but in specific, the attorney general, and the closeness with the office of the presidency. Hopefully, By now, your mind has started to drift a little bit, not too much because you've been enjoying the program just fine, a fine program it was, but hopefully you're starting to think about what reforms are possible for this position, how can we make this position something that's maybe a little bit better at conducting oversight of the executive branch as well as doing oversight across the country, something a little bit more impartial. So there are two basic models that I have seen that are applied at a state level. One is where the party that is opposite of whoever is the president, the premier, the prime minister, they select the attorney general or the equivalent of the attorney general, the chief magistrate. And so you have a little bit of an oppositional relationship between the executive branch And that wing of the judiciary, ideally creating a bit more transparency as to the activities of the executive branch without creating too many political distractions. The problem with that model, of course, would be people might use the position of the attorney general in that model to do a stepping stone campaign to becoming the president, the premier, the prime minister. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Another model that I've seen is one, not unlike the state of Texas where I reside, where the attorney general is voted on by the public. And we vote on the governor, you vote on the attorney general. If the public decides that they want to give the chief executive... Uh, an attorney general who's favorable to them, that is their will, and that will shall be done. If the public decides they want a little bit more of an adversarial relationship between the legislative branch, they can also do that by electing a Democrat to oppose the Republican governor or vice versa. And I'll be honest, I prefer either one of those two models to the model we presently have, and it is my hope that there is some renewed focus on district attorneys, state level attorneys general, and of course the position of the attorney general when it comes to the federal government. I worry that the way our politics is trending with the Democrats about to get back the executive branch. That this is one of the things that will have all momentum stifled or the Republicans will come in and all of a sudden want to do all this oversight on the Attorney General as though they'd just taken a big old nap for the last two and a half years. That's going to do it for this episode of Don't Worry About the Government. This episode is dedicated in fond remembrance of my mother's mother, my grandmother, Lucy Lano, who just recently passed. And I've mentioned her on the show and how I was really worried that I wasn't going to get to see her again before all of this coronavirus nonsense finally started to allay some and we could resume some semblance of normalcy. And it's been hard to watch the newsreels out of Europe or the australian continent and see these places able to resume a semblance of normalcy while i have been stuck here in texas which is one of the worst covid epicenters in the country and my grandmother's nursing home was locked down in a covid prevention effort and they did pretty well with preventing covid But even then, it still managed to get in and affect some people inside of the facility. But not my grandmother. My grandmother was fine through the duration of her life, but we weren't able to see her. We were able to go up on her 90th birthday and stand outside her window. And I played my little Casio keyboard, the one that uh, I made that delightful song about butts with. Um, I was playing that outside the window, and we were singing Happy Birthday to her. I got the chords down on the car ride over to see my grandmother, and her roommate seemed to really enjoy it. And I don't know how much grandma was really able to enjoy it. But, yeah, um, that's been tough. It's been tough. Uh, I'm going to miss her. Uh, I don't know that I, I think we go to a better place or anything when we die, but I'd like to think that my grandfather and my grandmother's souls are forever intertwined somewhere. And hopefully with my brother right now, I'm going to miss her a lot from my grandmother. I inherited a fondness for the equivalent of soap operas for men. Uh, my grandmother loved soap operas, and I, of course, fell in love with professional wrestling, and it's a, it's a love that lasts to this day. And my grandmother was also deeply into politics, and the rest of my family read the news. Grandpa read the newspaper, would would get the newspaper so that he could get the crossword puzzle in the back of the newspaper, and it kept his brain sharp, and he was good at crossword puzzles. He he was Pretty darn good at them. He could look up words, those sorts of things. And my parents watch TV, and they've followed the news, especially these days with how it's affecting things locally. But my grandmother was an absolute diehard news junkie. Now it was absolute crap. It was Fox News, and for years I used to. Uh, secretly change the television networks over to CNN or some more neutral network <laughs> to try to get grandma's news brain back into normalcy, but no, grandma was all the way. She was getting Clinton VHS tapes back in the 90s, and Fox News and Rush Limbaugh was always on in her house. She'd cook all afternoon long listening to all three hours of Russia's program as she was preparing the Italian dinner the dinner was great the radio was shit and she'd watch Fox News in the evening Uh, she was really into TV news it's part of the reason why I'm not into TV news right but I am very much into news and those passions live on from her with me also this love of cooking Uh, I think that that's a thing that runs in our family. It runs all through my mother's side. My dad likes to cook too, but I don't know that my grandpa did uh, so much. So, that's really a, a my mother's side sort of thing. But I inherited that from her, and so those things, those things don't have to die, right? Those things can live forever. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna miss her, and I loved her, and I just wanted to say that. Uh, you can follow the show at dwatg. You can follow me at Chris Novembrino, C H R I S N O V E M B R I N O. Our homepage is don'tworry.tv. And you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash dwatg or paypal.me slash dwatg. It's not pay dwatg. Uh, I'm just stupid. The actual email is pay at gmail.com. Uh, if you go on PayPal and you look for us that way. So, those are the ways you can support the show. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And until the next one, bye bye. Bye bye. bye, bye. bye.